So this guy went down to Mexico <laughs> and suffered Moctezuma's revenge. Howdy. You're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share our views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. After the loss of the ships of the First Texas Navy, Texas was defenseless against seaborne invasion. But from this low point, the Republic would rebuild its fleet and recruit a leader that would perform even more remarkable and daring feats than his predecessor and enter the annals of naval lore. This week, we finish our look at the remarkable story of the Texas Navy. But first, what's your favorite Matthew McConaughey performance that is not in Dazed and Confused? I was going to go with The Wedding Planner, but when I thought more about it, I decided that True Detective is my favorite role of his, and other than Dazed and Confused. Well, I was going to say Fool's Gold, because... That is comedy gold. Adventure, excitement, seaplanes. But then I thought about it, and uh, I went with something that I actually like a little bit more, his Clive Cussler portrayal in Sahara, because I enjoy that movie, even though critics hate it. I am actually kind of ashamed to admit I actually like Failure to Launch. I think it's a really funny movie. Um, but my favorite performance of his, um, just edging out Amistad uh, from the 1997, is the recent Interstellar, which I find to be a compelling movie, and his performance is fantastic. And also, just going to throw it in there, go back and watch Tropic Thunder, because that movie's genius. And he's not a huge role in it, but he's hilarious. When we left our story at the end of 1837, the Texas coast was defenseless, and its navy was no more. The small squadron of ships had served well in the Revolution, protecting the coast from incursion by Mexican warships and preventing Santa Ana's army from being resupplied. However, in the year after the war, it had been a huge drain on the treasury, had accomplished little to end the conflict with Mexico, and managed to produce diplomatic problems with two of Texas' staunchest allies. Two of the ships were sunk, one was captured by Mexico, and one was seized by the United States Navy to cover unpaid debts. Even the last remaining privateer, the Tom Toby, was sunk in a hurricane at Galveston. For the entire year of 1838, there was no Navy in Texas. Fortunately for Texas, Mexico was occupied with other concerns during most of that year. The Panic of 1837 was an economic recession that had global repercussions. For Texas, the collapse of banks and businesses in the U.S. meant that larger number of Easterners were flooding into Texas looking for a new start. For Europe, it meant tighter lending restrictions and a need to collect on outstanding debts. For Mexico, the decline in the price of silver, which was such an important part of its economy, combined with the interminable costs of its internal wars, made the government unable and unwilling to pay its debts to European lenders. And one of these lenders, France, arrived in force in 1838 to collect on some of those debts. The short, quote-unquote, pastry war didn't accomplish much, but it distracted Mexico from Texas, and as we've seen on our three-part Santa Ana series, it allowed that disgraced dictator one of his famous rebounds back into the Mexican political scene. When the issues with France and within Mexico calmed down, the government of Anastasio Bustamante, for now supported hardly by Santa Ana and his supporters, began making noises again about reconquering Texas. The end of 1838 saw the election of a new president for Texas, Mirabeau B. Lamar. 
He'd made rebuilding the Texas Navy one of his key campaign planks, and the Texas Congress largely supported him on this. An old merchant ship named Potomac had been purchased in New Orleans and was brought to Galveston, but it was worthless as a warship. It spent its entire career as a stores ship. Lamar had bigger plans. He was able to pass an appropriation bill through Texas Congress to commission the building of brand new sailing ships, which were to be commanded by professional sailors. These were to be better armed and equipped than the previous cobbled-together fleet. In addition, they would purchase a modern steamship, the newest innovation in naval technology. Six ships were ordered from the Baltimore shipyard and shot in Whitney for $280,000. They included the Austin, a sloop of war, the most powerful of the ships. The Austin carried 20 guns and was just one step down from a frigate, uh, which you'd know is to be something like the USS Constitution, for you Boston folks. It was four times the size of the Invincible and the independence of the First Texas Navy. In addition, they bought two brigs, the Wharton and the Archer, each carrying 15 guns. Finally, three schooners, the San Jacinto, the San Antonio, and the San Bernard, which were similar in size to original ships of the First Navy, but were much more capable. These three ships were actually sister ships to the more famous La Amistad, the Spanish slave ship that was taken in a revolt by its captives and later became the focus of a landmark Supreme Court case and a fantastic Matthew McConaughey vehicle. All of these ships would be delivered between 1839 and 1840. Indeed. The last ship purchased, the Zavala, was a paddlewheel steamer that started its life as a passenger ship Charleston. She was purchased in November 1838 for $120,000, and she was commissioned into the Navy as an armed schooner with five guns. She was the first steam warship to serve in any Navy in North America. Her military value is somewhat debatable. She was expensive to maintain, and there were few engineers to operate her since there were actually few engineers who knew how to actually operate steam engines. There were very few steam engines in the first place. Uh, most of those engineers probably wanted money to do their job, which Texans didn't actually have. So there was a tough time of actually just making sure she was maintained. Zavala's top speed was less than nine knots, which was slower than the other sailing ships. However, she did have one key advantage. She could operate in windless seas and she could go up rivers against strength. The new commander of this fleet was Edwin Moore, a 29-year-old veteran of the United States Navy from Virginia. He was the executive officer on the USS Boston and had recently seen service off the coast of Texas. There, the Boston had seized a Texas privateer ship, the Terrible, on piracy charges. Contact with the Texans apparently made him reevaluate his career as advancement opportunities in the tiny U.S. Navy were going to be few and far between. He was recruited by Lamar in April 1839 to join the Texas Navy, and he even began recruiting other sailors on the Boston to join him. There was only one problem. He was still an officer in the U.S. Navy. He was accused of violating the United States neutrality, and the Secretary of the Navy nearly brought him up on charges. Before that could happen, however, Moore resigned his commission and headed out to Texas to become its next Commodore. Moore was fiery, flamboyant, and charismatic like Henry Thompson but he was also capable and competent like Hawkins had been. He was a good judge of officers, and though he insisted on discipline and professionalism from the sailors of the Navy, he was well-liked by his men. He also had an independent streak that would cause trouble for him down the line. In late 1839, after picking up his new ships, 
he got into trouble again with American authorities for trying to recruit active U.S. Navy personnel. In the summer of 1840, after his entire squadron of ships had been delivered and his crews trained, Moore was ordered to take Austin, Zavala, and the, and the three schooners to the coast of Mexico to show off Texas's new strength. Wharton and Archer would stay behind to defend the coast. The Lamar government was attempting to negotiate recognition for Texas's independence from Mexico, and he wanted to use the Navy to add to the pressure. Moore was ordered to meet with the Federalist rebels who were fighting against Bustamante's government, but he was not allowed to take any action against them without permission from the negotiators. Now, despite Moore's entreaties to make use of the time to squeeze Bustamante, the fleet sat inactive for three months until the negotiations fell apart. It wasn't until October, after a Mexican fort fired on the Austin, that Moore and his squadron were turned loose. They negotiated an agreement with the rebel leaders to support yet another revolt in Yucatan, and later that month, Zavala proved her worth by towing Austin and San Bernard, carrying 150 rebel soldiers, 70 miles up the Tabasco River to capture the city of San Juan Bautista. For this work, Moore received $25,000 in silver. The squadron took some more prizes during their blockade, but ended up returning to Texas in February 1841, badly in need of resupply. They left behind the wreckage of San Jacinto, which had gone down in a storm in November. Zavala had also been badly damaged, and after docking in Galveston, never returned to sea. She was grounded in a storm in 1842 and scrapped in 1843. Moore returned to a hero's welcome, but unfortunately, a confused political situation, Lamar's government wouldn't authorize his fleet to return to Mexico to keep up the fight, and instead tried one more round of failed diplomacy. Because diplomacy always works between Texas and Mexico. Moore refitted his fleet the best he could and spent the next few months mapping the Texas coast. The coastal charts of the day were often wildly inaccurate, which resulted in shipwrecks. Moore's charts ended up proving so accurate that they were entered into the British Admiralty charts, the world's standard navigational tool of the day. Later in 1841, President Lamar finally got aggressive with Mexico, even as he prepared to leave his office. He devised a land-sea strategy for forcing Mexico to recognize Texas' independence. The land component was the disastrous Santa Fe expedition. The sea component involved leasing the Texas Navy to the rebel government in Yucatan for $8,000 a month. It was one of his last acts as president. (laughs) Here you go. I'm selling you off. I'm renting you out. Before Houston could assume the presidency again, Moore was sent to Yucatan with the Austin, San Antonio, St. Bernard, and Wharton, all to blockade the Yucatan coast. Now this time, Moore saw very little action, although there was a mutiny by the crew of San Antonio when it went to New Orleans in February to pick up provisions. On the night of 11th of February 1842, several of the ship's sailors and marines got drunk, and they tomahawked the duty officer to death. (laughs) Uh, The U.S. Naval Revenue Cutter Jackson was alerted by the noise that accompanied the incident, and they restored order. They captured 13 men, and they turned them over to the Texas authorities. The main ringleaders were given lashes, and four men were hanged from Austin's yardarm. In March 1842, Moore was ordered home by President Houston. The rest of the year was a frustrating one for Moore. The government wouldn't or couldn't pay the Navy, and even worse, Houston pursued actively anti-Navy policies— probably because of his bad experiences with the first Texas Navy. 
Houston tried to mothball the fleet, even though Santa Ana, back in power in Mexico, was rebuilding his own navy. Moore ended up having to pay for repairs and for officers' salaries out of his own pocket. After the Mexican invasion that briefly captured San Antonio in 1842, the Texas public demanded stronger action against Mexico, and Houston declared a blockade of the Mexican coast. But he didn't give Moore any funding. Yeah. Here, I'm declaring a blockade. No money to do it. Just, (laughs) there's a blockade. Moore was stranded in New Orleans with the Austin, the Wharton, and San Antonio trying to get repairs funded when he learned Yucatan was again in rebellion. He, what is with those Yucatan rebellions? Uh, you know, they're just not fans of Santa Ana, which makes me yeah. a fan of the Yucatan. <laughs> or as I like to call it, Nuevo Tejas. <laughs> <laughs> he decided to take matters into his own hands, because that's what a sea captain does, and he renewed his previous contract with the rebels. The San Antonio was sent south to make contact with the rebel leaders, but it disappeared with all hands during the great hurricane of September 1842. The same storm destroyed her sister ship, the San Bernard, in Galveston Bay when it hit Texas. This took the Texas Navy down to just three ships. In January 1843, Houston convinced Congress to permanently cut off all funding for the Navy and ordered the sale of the remaining ships at auction in New Orleans because (laughs) Sam Houston was throwing a temper tantrum. Uh, Yeah. Because that's how he he rolls. Well, you know. Yeah, I like I like when people do what I say. Moore wasn't done yet, though. He convinced the two commissioners sent by Houston to sell off the fleet to hold off on doing so. Then, in April 1843, he managed to get Austin and Wharton repaired and, without orders, set sail for Yucatan, where he joined a small squadron of rebel ships under the command of former First Texas Navy Captain James Broyland. Broyland had commanded the Brutus, if you remember. The Mexican Navy they faced was far more powerful than the combined Texas and Yucatan fleet. Mexico's Navy had grown stronger, adding several ships from the U.S., as well as two large modern British steam warships, the Guadalupe and the Moctezuma. Both ships were commanded by former Royal Navy captains. Actually, they were current Royal Navy captains who were just sort of doing their own thing for a while. Still, Moore was a fighter, and he was determined to take the fight to his opponents. In doing so, he set the stage for one of the most remarkable encounters in naval history. On April 30th, Moore surprised the larger Mexican squadron off the small Yucatan port of Campeche, attacking them with just Austin and Wharton early in the morning. After an all-morning action where the ships of both sides were damaged, neither side held the clear advantage. The Texan ships had stood up to a superior force and fought well, but it was a tactical draw. It was a strategic victory for the Texas Yucatan fleet, however. The government siege of Campeche, which the Mexican fleet had been attempting to resupply, was mortally wounded. The Mexican government was infuriated. The British commanders of the steamships complained that their men were sick and undersupplied, but the Mexican Navy supplied untrained soldiers to replace these sick sailors, which was definitely not a good idea. Moore, meanwhile, was encouraged by the action. He repaired his ships and prepared for another attack on the Mexican Navy. On May 16, 1843, Moore again tried to use favorable winds to engage the enemy. This time, though, he suffered the sailor's worst nightmare. He lost his wind when the seas calmed. Austin and Wharton were sitting ducks for the steam-powered Guadalupe and Moctezuma. For two hours, they were exposed to long-range Mexican fire. 
Remarkably, the only damage was from shell fragments, as most of the shots fired at them missed. So, this guy went down to Mexico <laughs> and suffered Moctezuma's revenge? Not really. It didn't really bother Something like that. As soon as the Texans regained the wind, they quickly closed on the Mexican ships to engage in close-in fighting. Moore's ships took numerous hits and suffered seven killed and 26 wounded, but they inflicted a terrible toll on the enemy. Guadalupe lost nearly 50 dead and 100 wounded and had one of her paddle wheels disabled, while Moctezuma suffered 40 casualties, including her captain. The Mexican squadron was finally able to escape the Texans when Moore ran out of shells to fire. It was a clear victory and is noted in history as the only time steam warships were ever defeated by sailing ships. It was also the first time exploding shells were used in any naval engagement. Though both ships were badly damaged and essentially out of ammunition, they remained on station at Campeche and sortied several times to ward off the weakened Mexican Navy. However, on May 26, Moore finally got word from Texas that President Houston had found out about his unauthorized excursion and declared the action illegal. In fact, Houston publicly called Moore a pirate, a murderer, a mutineer, and an embezzler. I say you're an embezzler, sir. Moore sent word back that he hoped his actions were proof of his character and requested further orders. Meanwhile, supplies arrived from Texas and the ships were repaired. By July, the siege was fully lifted and the rebels and centralists agreed to a truce. Moore's ships returned to Galveston with a hero's welcome. There were parades, banquets, toasts, and balls for Texas' newest hero, a hero with a warrant for his arrest, <laughs> you know, from his boss, Sam Houston. True to his sense of honor, Commodore Moore dutifully surrendered himself to the Galveston County Sheriff on piracy charges that were leveled against him. The sheriff refused to arrest him, though. Houston dismissed Moore from his post as commandant, and nearly every officer in the fleet promptly submitted his resignation in protest. Remember, Moore recruited all of them, so they were pretty loyal to him. So next, Moore demanded a court-martial to prove his innocence, but Houston ignored that request. Moore responded by publishing a pamphlet describing the inner workings and political struggles of the Navy that it had gone through. This caused enough of a stir that Congress forced Houston to convene a court-martial, which he packed with his own political allies. They promptly acquitted Moore of all but a few small charges, and they recommended he have his position back. Now, why would Houston's men clear Moore of most of the charges? Well, Houston didn't need any popular martyrs who could claim to be wronged by him. It was easier just to keep him sitting in port with no money, no men, and deteriorating ships. After July 1843, none of the three remaining ships of the Texas Navy ever put to sea in Texas service again. Most of the sailors were discharged without pay, and most of the officers were not reinstated as more was. In 1846, when Texas was annexed by the United States, the Austin, Wharton, and Archer, and also the wreck of the San Bernard, were transferred to the United States Navy. They were all in poor condition, and the Wharton, Archer, and San Bernard were all quickly sold for next to nothing. The Austin was towed to Pensacola, Florida, and was a receiving ship until she too ran aground and was wrecked. Moore ended up spending the rest of his life trying to get Texas to reimburse him for all the money he personally spent to repair his ships. He got some of the money shortly before annexation, and in 1857, he finally got five years of pay for himself and his officers. 
He died in 1865 in New York City shortly after the end of the Civil War. In the 1870s, the Texas legislature named a county after him. Naturally, the irony is, is that Moore County is in the far northwest panhandle, which is about as far away from the sea or really any body of water as you can get and still be in Texas. Today, few people know that Texas had a Navy or that it had such a remarkable history. In recent years and months, the Zavala has been in the news. As author and shipwreck expert Clive Clustler claimed in the 1980s that he'd found her wrecked engines. In recent months, the site was rediscovered, but those engines were identified as railroad engines. Now, this is a fact that Clive Clustler and presumably Dirk Pitt promptly disputed. The upside of this attention, though, is that people are now learning more about this remarkable time in Texas history. Today, there's a third Texas Navy, the Texas Navy Association. Its flagship is the Battleship Texas, and it's largely an honorary service organization whose mission is to present the history of the Texas Navy to Texans and non-Texans alike. (laughs) We've already talked about the flagship of the Texas Navy. that's a story for another day. Actually. (laughs) (laughs) But that's a story for another day. No. Now this, I mean, you know, the cool thing to me about this whole Texas Navy idea is, is that it's like a few years ago, I was at a training in California for work and there was this guy who was from Canada and we were in San Francisco and he said, oh, you're from Texas. It, you know, must be nice for you to get to see the ocean. I mean, you don't really have anything down there in Texas. And I was like, um, <laughs> it's only one of the largest coastlines in the continental United States, my friend. Uh you know, the third, the kind of forgotten third coast, but, but, uh, you know, it's something to really, I think to be proud of these guys, they were, they were awesome. They were tough. You know, they, uh, they certainly imbued the Texas spirit by not following orders when they're ordered to do something. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, they, uh, their whole shtick, I guess was, you know what, we don't have any money. We don't have any support. But we're going to be a Navy, gosh darn it. And we're going to go fight the Mexicans. Yeah. I think the Navy quote applies to to one of the very early quotes we talked about, the Texas Revolution. The value of the Texas fighting man, you know, cannot be underestimated. Yeah. Well, and they, you know, the Navy, the second Navy, they voted money to go basically get the very best Navy they could possibly build. And uh, they didn't pay for it. Uh, they, they bought it on credit, which Texas bought everything on credit. Uh I think the United <laughs> States government ended up having to pay the bill to the the Shot and Whitley for uh, those six ships, but they did, you know, they did buy some very fine ships. And actually, they uh, the the reading that I did said that U.S. Navy officers remarked often on their fine lines and excellent handling. Well, I think it, you know the thing that I probably would have the biggest point of pride is the fact that you know they went up against. In true Texas fashion, they boldly went against these much larger, much better equipped, more modern warships that were captained by, you know, the best in the world. Yeah, the best in the world. Best in the world. And they went up, you know, Texas went up against them. And we licked them good, you know? Yeah, it, it's a great story. And Moore is a, another one of those great characters that this is very little known. I mean, most people in all four people that live in Moore County. Um, probably don't know why the who their county is named for. <laughs> uh, probably think he's named for a cowboy or something. Yeah. Well, if you're if you're near Moore County, if you're near Moore County, passing through, and you stop at a gas station, you should say, yeah. "Hey, good on you, Moore County." 
Yeah, and the first naval battle with exploding shells. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I think there's this vision of Texas to most people of, especially non-Texans, you know, they see it as the, the planes and horses and all of that stuff. But it's, again, it, the coast is a, a huge and significant part of what makes the Texas economy work and what mm-hmm. makes it such a vibrant and interesting place. And, uh, you know, can't forget about that. Yeah. I, I think the other, th- the other side of the story is, is, you know, we love Sam Houston. I'm, I'm going to be not ashamed to admit we love, we absolutely love <laughs> Sam Houston. Um, but he does not come across very well in this story at all. Um, that he is like, I'm going to, you know, the remarkable thing is like, he's, he says, I'm going to, I'm going to fire you. And then when you want your court martial, I'm going to ignore you. And then when you get your court martial, I'm going to marginalize you. And like that, he just, he just comes across as pretty petulant and, uh, um, stubborn in this situation. Well, you know, it's funny you say that because a couple of weeks ago we were talking about, um, Eisenhower and I was just recently watching, of course, the movie Patton, uh, because it's one of my faves. And the funny thing is, is like listening to the story of Moore is kind of like that of, you know, he's that scene where he's like, you know, if you just give me the gasoline and the bullets, I'll march right across and I'll just take out Mr. Hitler. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, kind of feel like Moore was like, you know, if you just be just 10% more supportive in this relationship, Sam Houston, just, <laughs> just yeah. a little bit more supportive. We can really make a di- we can really make a difference here. Yeah, well, and I I wonder if uh, um, our good friend David G. Burnett, uh, you know, supported uh, Moore in his uh, his creation of his pamphlet. Now, here, I've got some info for you. <laughs> Say he's a drunk. Say he's a drunk. <laughs> it's a lot. Hey, listen, it's a. It, there's a time. I like to think of as the '90s when like people would put a lot of flyers and pamphlets up pre-internet, and there's a lot of paper being passed around with information. And uh, I think you know now everybody just tweets about stuff. But but back in the day, the pamphlet was a powerful and derisive, divisive uh, message for letting people know what was going on in the world. Well, and so it seems to me that there were two successful opponents of the Texas Navy of both Texas navies. One was Sam Houston, and the other was the was the weather was storms because almost all of these ships were wrecked by storms. Well, you know, that's the other non-Texas thing. And, and Scott might agree with this in uh, growing up, like spent a lot, I spent time in Corpus as a kid and the hurricane was something that you were really terrified of, uh, particularly because so many people, so many grownups that I was a kid around had, had been through Alicia, which was really terrible in Corpus. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, so you were like, but then you'd go other places and be like a hurricane. That's just like a bad, this is like a bad thunderstorm, <laughs> right? And you're like, yeah, yeah. Like yeah. the worst thunderstorm <laughs> yeah, like ever. The worst thunderstorm. Yeah. Yeah. Like imagine being in a thunderstorm with 150 mile an hour winds <laughs> on a boat <laughs> made of wood and tar pitch. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, with with hundred foot long <laughs> sail uh, sail mass that can tip you over. So I think there's this sort of um, yeah, like I think I think Mother Nature really had it out for the Texas Navy at a few critical points. But it's just you know I can't imagine like 
the strain and the stress that the Texas government was under from a financial point of view. I mean, we talk about things like economic crises and stuff today, but you really look at the books of it, you're like, people were just basically, they were giving Texas credit, but they're really essentially just giving Texas money. <laughs> and and not, you know, they're just, how they were able to leverage and maintain and be so effective with so little in this time is really impressive. But I think that's the, again, that's that Texas spirit of can do, figure it out as we go sort of thing. Maybe not the best approach to international public policy, but yeah, but pretty well, good for get, getting through a naval let's battle. Let's rent out the Navy. <laughs> <laughs> it's for sale if you want it. Yeah, that's a... <laughs> That is the definition of a of a dick move. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so adjusted for inflation, just back to nineteen hundred, two hundred eighty thousand dollars is six million dollars. So, I mean, that's a that's a and that's just back a century. Hey, Sean, um, can I borrow six million dollars? So I'm gonna I'm gonna buy a couple of ships, no. and uh, then I'm just gonna rent them out. <laughs> yeah. Not for like tour guides or cruises of the Texas coast, but. Uh, I'm going to sail down to Mexico and just declare open warfare. Mm. Yeah, sure. Why not? I, I will say that it is rather disappointing that uh, the engines of the Zavala were not actually buried there in Galveston. Cause, well, well, Clive Kessler disagrees. Yeah. He says they, that is the, well, And Dirk Pitt says it too. <laughs> Would have been a cool story. I really do, like I said at the top of the show, I actually, I like Sahara the movie. I know Clive Cussler didn't like it that much, but I do like his book. So I <laughs> yeah. really would love to believe the, I want to believe the story. Uh, and while you're at it, be sure to go back and check out our Battleship Texas episode. Go online and find out about the modern Texas Navy because it is an important learning resource and can always use your financial support. God bless Texas. All right, that wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstaple.com. We'd love to hear from you, so like and share us on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast, or go to brainstaple.com and leave some feedback. You can find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. Why not follow us individually, too? I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Max Sean with two N's. And I'm Scotticus. We know you love this show. We know you love Texas. And now, pretty big fans of the Texas Navy, aren't you? So get out there and do your duty, sailor, and tell your friends to go and leave a review on iTunes, because that really helps us out. And make them listen to the show, because it's awesome. If you want to support the show financially, please go to patreon.com slash texaspodcast, where you can become a member of the Come and Take It Nation. We hope you'll join us next time. And remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas wants you anyway.